It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. And good evening. I'm Clarence Boone. Welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show. Now in our 14th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show, committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Good evening. Good evening, Clarence. I'm Liz Mitchell. In today's broadcast, we'll speak with representatives from Indiana University's First Nations Educational and Cultural Center, who will be here to discuss activities scheduled for Native American Heritage Month, scheduled for the month of November. All of this in the next hour on Bring It On. Uh, But first, in July 1835, African-American pioneers Hansel Roberts, Elijah Roberts, and Makaja Walden journeyed to the federal government's land office in Indianapolis to purchase homesteads in northern Hamilton County, 30 miles north of that county. Their claims have been intentionally chosen to be within several miles of Quakers, a group known to be accepting and supportive of free blacks. In October 1835, the men brought their families to their wilderness claims and settled permanently, thereby establishing a farm community later known as Roberts Settlement. By 1840, the neighborhood included included about 10 families and 900 acres of land. Their claims had been intentionally chosen to be within several miles of the Quakers, a group known to be accepting and supportive of free blacks. In October of 1835, the men brought their families here, just like Clarence said, and made their claims and settled down, therefore establishing a farm community later known as the Roberts Settlement. By 1840, the neighborhood included included 10 families and, of course, 900 acres of land, and that was the beginning. Now, people of mixed African, Native American, and European descent Uh, The first Roberts settlers had been raised in eastern North Carolina, an area where their families had lived as modest, well-respected free landowners for at least a generation before the American Revolution. They migrated to Indiana's frontier in large measure because their freedom seemed in jeopardy. Lavella Heiter, Roberts Settlement descendant, board member and media chair, and Dr. Catherine Hughes, director of Museum Theater and Research for Conner Prairie, join us to discuss Indiana's Roberts Settlement. Lavella and Catherine, can you hear us? Welcome to Bring It On. Yes, we can. Thanks for having us. Hey, Uh, thank you. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate you affording us this time. And um, one thing, this, this whole encounter that we're about to enjoy started uh, based on a visit that my family uh, took to Connor Prairie back in September uh, to see sort of a reenactment of the Roberts Settlement. And I was just so impressed with both the visual displays that were there, the, uh, the individuals who were in period dress, and then some of the uh, memorabilia from that time, including personal letters and even a map, uh, Liz, on, on how to come from North Carolina to Indiana. 
And so I just wanted to have you ladies come on and talk about this a little further. And if you'll uh, just introduce yourselves, uh, we sort of had a brief introduction, but just introduce yourselves and tell us your involvement with this uh, tremendous project that's ongoing up in Hamilton County. Well, hello. My name is Catherine Hughes. I'm the Director of Museum Theater and Research here at Connor Prairie. So I was part of the project team that developed the play and the exhibit that you saw, Clarence, uh, here at Connor Prairie in September. And uh, Lavella, are you there? I'm here. Uh, I'm a board member and a descendant. Uh, at Robert Settlement, uh, having been, having lived there as a, a youth, and uh, I might say that, uh, you know, you already spoke a little bit about the dynamics of our settlement that are still ongoing, and I think that we are, are very, very happy to have a collaboration and a partnership uh, in many ways with Cotter Prairie Museum that has been very supportive uh, of our community and uh, other similar communities in Indiana. Well, Lavella, welcome. This is Liz Mitchell. My first question is how and who saved uh, the letters and artifacts from the very first, your family, from the very first settlers who came? Who thought of that and, and made that initiative to do that? Well, I think it's interesting that uh, you know, history, what, what, what are we without history, right? Absolutely, absolutely. How many of our, our forefathers and foremothers had the thought of saving a lot of the letters and the documents, some of which are on record at the, uh, uh, in the halls of the U.S. Uh, Library in Washington, D.C.? Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition, we have some that have, uh, have left their materials on, like at Indiana University, uh, with their history department there. And, it's, uh, and it still goes on, even in today's uh, generation. We're still saving and accumulating old photographs, old documents, and it seems to be a never-ending process. Yes, but which, uh, years ago, was it your great-grandmother? Who saved, who started savings? Do you know the... It would have to be now. My, I'm a direct descendant to Hansel. Okay. Okay. And uh, so it goes back to, to that period of time, and it just has uh, perpetuated. Uh, I even have uh, a very old document from my, my great-grandmother uh, that I personally have kept. It's uh, very valuable to me. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're able to, to share, I'm sure, as we talk a little bit further about our homecoming, we share a lot of that material during our homecoming to uh, talk about our history and educate those in the younger generations. I would like to know, too, do any family members still own some of the original property? Yes, they do. Wonderful. We, we currently have uh, two family members that still own a lot of the property. Uh, and we're very fortunate that that still endures. Um, and as you have mentioned before, I think it was Clarence earlier mentioned that, uh, you know, that property has been in the hands of only African Americans from its first existence. So we're very proud of that, that uh, situation as well. I'm proud of that, too. That's awesome. Makes me feel good. 
And and I share with uh, you ladies that um, Liz and I are, are not strangers to black settlements in Indiana. We did a field trip several summers ago and traveled down to uh, the um, the Vincennes area near Princeton, Indiana. Lyle Station. Lyle Station and the descendants from uh, that settlement, which went on, as you ladies both are well aware, uh, created a, a very thriving schools, uh, school system there. And one of their descendants went on to become uh, one on the wait staff as a butler in the White House. And, and at that time, that was a very prestigious uh, position to hold. And there is some conversation as to whether or not the movie was in some way uh, attributed to that person's life. Maybe Liz, you could share some, some thoughts a little bit later on that. But uh, these settlements in Indiana, um, how many would you estimate are there? Currently or in the past? Oh, that's a good question. Well, uh, I can tell you that in question. the past, uh, as I hope people are aware, there are 92 counties in Indiana, and all but four had black communities. And some counties had more than one. I know Randolph County had three to four black communities. So I don't know the exact number. Would Would you know? Well, we... Um we're fortunate to go and hear uh, the um, historian Annalisa Cox. Uh-huh, yes. Indianapolis. Um, she has written this new book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. Uh, and in it, she maps out an amazing amount of black settlements that existed across Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. In total, and this is from 1800 to 1860, mm-hmm. there were 338. Wow. So that's not just farms. That is settlements. So those were a collection of farmers that were farming together in a community. And as you may know, those those particular states were a part of what was called back then the Northwest yes, Territory. Yes, that's correct. Uh huh. Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin. And so when when pioneers spoke of going to the Northwest Territory, it was to those particular states. Yes. And Indiana had 92 uh, settlements at that time. Okay. And I had written myself a note. I thought it was about 82, so I was about 10 off. Okay. And and then the second part of that uh, question you posed to me, Catherine, was uh, initial settlements or currently current existing. Um, what typically happens? The last descendant moves or they sell the property or what, what may happen so that a settlement just disappears? Well, I, I suspect that it's an, a number of reasons. Uh, as, as far as Robert's settlement is concerned, I can speak to that, um, that we've had our challenges, and, uh, you know, as, as things pr- progress and things change, if you were, um, you know, a child growing up in the settlement, and, of course, we always uh, aspire to go further in our education, to, uh, uh, you know, seek other opportunities. And, and quite often that took you away from the settlement. It took you, you know, to other cities 
whether it be Indianapolis, Chicago, where, where, what have you, as well as uh, going to, uh, to college. That took you away. And when that dynamic happened, you had, you know, certain generations that their interests were not back in the settlement directly. So they no longer wanted to, to live there, per se, uh, but they still do, you know, come back during our Fourth of July weekend and what have you. But as time went on, you know, you had the, you had uh, the, the landowners there at the settlement who died, and what they normally would do is, the heirs would get a certain portion of those those acres. Mm-hmm. And so as as time transpired and what have you, you know, you had some heirs that were not interested in maintaining them and just sold them off and, and so on and so forth. But I think the, what we've been uh, blessed to have is to have uh, uh, a good insight and, and really so much support from not only the descendants but a lot of people in the community to, uh, to help us continue to grow, to help us get the message out there. We want to continue to share our history with Everybody, just not in our local community, but throughout Indiana and, and the country, you know. And so we've been uh, fortunate to have uh, some board members uh, that have been very thoughtful and have been instrumental in having the vision to be able to make some changes. And it also takes some courage, too, to, to change. And, and, you know, when you think about it, you know, every generation in any settlement, or for that matter, for any anything that you may be going through, right, uh, it, it takes somebody to be able to be, be willing to accept those challenges. Because with the challenges often come opportunities to help you learn more, to help you grow. So, uh, so right now, uh, we're, we're fortunate to still be intact uh, since 1835. And they also have a great location with the chapel and the graveyard behind, uh, which has been restored and is really a wonderful place to sort of commune with the ancestors. Yes. Um, so that provides a place. And keeping up, keeping up with the times, you know, we have uh, our website. Uh, we also are, uh, we have a a concept that we are considering for kind of maybe having a virtual tour. That's something that we are thinking about. Uh, we do conduct tours up there, you know, whether it be students who often come there or, or just individuals may be in contact with us and want to, want to uh, you know, have some uh, dialogue about what the settlement was all about or they want to take a tour inside the chapel. We can accommodate that as well. Have uh, have you been in contact with Stan Madison of Lyle Station to kind of mirror what he is doing there? He has large groups there and festivals, and he's really trying to show what life was like for the African-American farmer before the Civil War and when Lyle Station uh, started. Are you considering doing something like that? We have some contact with them. I think it's interesting that you brought that up, Liz, and that that we've been talking about uh, reaching out a little bit more to Lyle Station and, and Beach uh, Settlement as yes. well. Because there are different things that you can share, okay? Yes. Uh-huh. Different experiences that you may have that could help each settlement and vice versa. 
Uh, one of the things I've been wanting to do is, and I've started doing this, is to visit each one of the known black settlements. And what I have discovered with the few I've been to, which is Lyle Station, Lick Creek, Lost Creek, is that it seems to be connectors like, um, and I was wondering if your descendants had a connection with any of those through marriage or something, um, if you have a connector with any of the other black settlements. Yes, we do, uh, as a matter of fact. And, and when um, when the, the, the pioneers did leave North Carolina and Virginia, um, you know, they made some stops along the way before they got to Robert's settlement. So we do have uh, some footprints with Lyle Station and and uh, uh, the Beach Settlement as well. Yeah, because I noticed the name Roberts had was in different areas too, and I, that's what made me think that there may be family members that married and moved to another settlement or or something like that. That's true. That's correct. And have you been to uh, Lost Creek's gathering? I, I went once, and that was very interesting. And it seems to me that a lot of people came out of North Carolina because of what was happening at the time with the laws changing. Um, the Chandlers here in Bloomington, they came from North Carolina, and some of the people in Lick Creek and Lost Creek. And so I wondered if there was a connection even before they came to Indiana. Would either of you ladies know that? I don't know that for sure, but there possibly was. Um, I think uh, in the North Carolina area and uh, in, in Virginia, uh, there were, you know, certain connections. And, and even today, Liz, we, we are kind of scratching the surface as, as to being able to connect with those North Carolinians who stayed there. Mm after our uh, forefathers and foremothers left. So we, we just established co some connection on that front. For those uh, who've just joined us, we're having a fascinating conversation this evening with Lavella Heiter, who was the last voice you just heard. She's a Roberts Settlement descendant, also a board member, and, a media, and has the position of media chair with that board. And Dr. Catherine Hughes, who's director of Museum Theater and Research for Connor Prairie. And they're here tonight to discuss the Indiana's Indiana's Roberts Settlement. Um, if, if I can ask you both, is this one question, the relationship and and partnership with Connor Prairie? How did that come to pass? And then, and as I mentioned earlier, I attended um, back in September and saw this is this truly wonderful reenactment play. Uh, so, if, can you talk about that, if if you will? Sure. This is Catherine. Um, I arrived uh, around five years ago uh, here at Connor Prairie after working at the Atlanta History Center and at the uh, in Georgia, and uh, had done a lot of work on African American history around there. Uh, and when I came up to Connor Prairie, I found out about the existence of the Roberts Settlement. Um, we are always looking for opportunities to tell local history stories here at Connor Prairie. And so this really provided us with uh, a natural partnership to reach out to them and invite them to 
come and talk to us, tell us some of the stories, and see how we might be able to share with our guests a broader history of the area. Um, we know that there is an incredibly rich history in this area of abolition, of, uh, of Quakers, Southern Methodists, um, uh, these folks who really were here and gathering together very purposefully um, because they did not agree with slavery. And so it was a place uh, of slightly more uh, safety than other places in Indiana. There was always a threat um, that never went away and, in fact, blossomed, unfortunately, later uh, in the early 1900s. But at the time of settlement in 1835 uh, for the Roberts Settlement, it was a, a good place to be up here in northwest Hamilton County. Um, so Connor Prairie uh, began an initiative called Giving Voice, which is uh, a partnership with Asante Children's Theater from Indianapolis um, to bring Indiana's history forward and to tell the story of African Americans in Indiana. So we have done a number of different projects over the years. Uh, one of the largest projects we did just this past July for the second time, it's a play called More Light, Douglas Returns by Celeste Williams. And it tells the story of when Frederick Douglass came to Noblesville and spoke in 1880. And he was coming at the behest of a local Republican committee that was made up of members from the Roberts Settlement. And so we wanted to bring to life that story um, for visitors, and that was done um, over the course of July, and we sold out eventually in that project. And we were really, really happy to be able to celebrate Frederick Douglass's 200th, the bicentennial of his birth. Um, and we had his great, great, great grandson, Ken Morris, come and speak here and see the play about his ancestor. Oh, wonderful. Really very exciting. And so Ken was here and met all of the Roberts descendants, um, which is really interesting because there is actually a connection between some of the Roberts descendants and Ken Morris. They share a common relative. Oh, my. Yeah. Not surprised. It's a small world. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, you know, even though the, the Roberts and other blacks came here to the Northwest Territory, as it was called then, um, and seeking freedom because it was supposed to be free, they were not without threats and not without trouble. Uh, so how did the Roberts settlements uh, survive all that? Because there were plenty of slave catchers, and with the Slave Act, uh, in the, I think it was 1850s, that put a damper on things. And then, of course, there was a time when Indiana uh, paid blacks to leave, gave them $50 to go to Liberia. So 
it seemed did any of that affect the, the Roberts settlement or it didn't? Well, I, I think um, what was undoubtedly on the minds of Elijah and Nakaja and Hansel was um, how they can make it work in Indiana. Now, when they were in, in uh, North Carolina, they also lived close to Quaker, a Quaker community there as well, mm-hmm. being very tolerant of people of color. Um, um, many of the Quakers at that time were uh, abolitionists. And luckily, when, uh, when they came to the wilderness around Robert's settlement, they realized, well, it's a Quaker community as well. Being around Boxley and Baker's Corner, Indiana, uh, and that was even an area where uh, you had the Underground Railroad uh, going through that area, not far from Robert's settlement. So, you know, we we wanted to maintain those relationships. Likewise, there's a part of our, um, the spiritual side of it, too, that was rather interesting in that um, the the Wesleyan community, uh, being being at Roberts means that you embrace freedom, you embrace equality, uh, and uh, and we we maintain our in- integrity at all times, and uh, we did uh, at our our chapel up there. We had uh, many white members that were involved in our our, uh, our services up there as well. Even our schools, our schools were very well renowned for being uh, having a high level of educational uh, education ability. And likewise, there were uh, most of the whites in the local area came to our school to, to learn as well. So we, we did embrace that. And um, now keep in mind, you know, you still had, uh, I, I think it was not a short period of time after uh, Robert Silva was founded, there, there was uh, a, a black... Uh, pioneer, a black, black settler who was kidnapped and he was sold into slavery in southern Hamilton County. Mm-hmm. That's the story of uh, Pete. Um, yeah. He was the first African American that we know of who lived in Hamilton County. And uh, uh, we believe that he worked on William Connor's farm. Um, and he was kidnapped and taken south. Uh, it's, a, it's a horrific story. Uh, the other story that we tell here at Connor Prairie as a play um, is called the Robert the, the Rhodes Family Incident, and that relates to the Roberts clan in that um, some of them were part of the uh, a large crowd that helped to save this family from being taken back south. This couple uh, that eventually called themselves John and Luann Rhodes. Um, escaped slavery, uh, went through uh, from Missouri through Illinois, ended up in Westfield, and were able to uh, settle, build a cabin, um, and uh, surround themselves with abolitionists, Quakers, and the Roberts family members. And uh, unfortunately, in 1844, their former owner, a man named Singleton Vaughn, found out where they were, came up here, and attacked 
them at their cabin to get them back. Mm. Cut them off, uh, and they, there are accounts of Luann uh, fighting just as hard as her husband. Um, but, of course, these men had guns. They did not. Yes. Um, but the Quakers and abolitionists and others in the area formed a crowd around them. And when they took them out of the house and put them into a wagon, somehow one of the Quakers was able to get a hold of that wagon and took off with the family, because they had a baby at that time, uh, took off with them and spirited them away and hid them on the, I think, Lindley's farm. Uh, And then they were taken to court for stealing the property of Singleton Vaughn. And we have this story. It comes to us mainly because of the court records that exist in Noblesville. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They were able to win the court case based on the fact that Singleton Vaughn bought them in an illegal sale in Missouri. Oh. were not his property. And they were able to stay in the area. We know that their son was uh, not a constable, but a marshal, was he? What did you call him? Uh, Something like a marshal. Yeah, and and so we do know of John Rhodes. Uh, they had Lydia and John. Um, and, and then we sort of lose the historic record of them, but we do a play that imagines contemporary college students who grew up in Westfield but feel alienated from it. Um, They have both moved to Atlanta so that they can be in touch with uh, African-American history and culture in a way that they didn't feel in Westfield. Uh, But they're home visiting their families uh, on a break, and their car breaks down in Asa Bales Park. Asa Bales was one of the founders of Westfield, And in that park is a historic sign that says the Rhodes family incident. People go by this every day on Route 32, and they don't notice it. Um, And they bump into this uh, sign while they're waiting to get their car fixed. And it changes. They, through the magic of theater, they go back in time, and they they, um, experience the story of John and Luann Rhodes, and they are struck by how the idea of hearing a story from history changes your view of where you're from, as well as maybe your relationship to that place. What I would like to know, and I'm sure my listening audience would like to know this too, we want to be able to attend the plays. How do we hear about them? You have something coming up called Follow the North Star. So, and I missed out on the play about uh, the Roberts family. I don't want to miss any more. And then I certainly want you to come and attend the the plays that Resilience Productions is putting on here in Bloomington. So tell us, how can we see what you've got going on at Connor Prairie? Well, we we do have Follow the North Star starting up just this uh, week, uh, actually. Uh, that is a fully participatory museum theater experience. Mm-hmm. We are now in our 20th year of presenting. Um, it is an intense program. Uh, people buy a ticket and they take on the role of a fugitive 
who has been brought up here and sold uh, in in a legal sale in the woods, and they are given an opportunity to uh, escape uh, and try to make their way along what they wouldn't have called the Underground Railroad, but they're trying to make their way to freedom. Um, and they meet various characters that would have existed, lived here in this area in 1836. Okay. Um, some friendly and some foe. Um, it, we had a lot of different views of perspectives on slavery in Indiana. While it was a free state, it was not necessarily friendly. Right. One. Uh, trying to escape slavery. So uh, so they make their way uh, eventually to uh, a, a final stop on this tour, and they meet a prophet who will tell them their future. Uh, and then after that, we have an, a debriefing experience for every group that goes through. So, so how do people go about taking this tour? How do they? Yeah. How? What? What do the audience members need to know? Or um, go to our website www.connorprairie.org, and you can look on the header uh, at the top about what is happening right now. Uh, Follow the North Star. We'll be on there, and you can just click on that and see how to get tickets. Ladies, uh, as I thought what happened, and what typically happens when we have engaging conversation, we've sort of come to the end of the allotted time. But I, I, if we can do this in one minute, that means 30 seconds per person, uh, let us know something that you may, we may not have touched on, but you want our listeners to learn about, and, and uh, we'll try to wrap this up with that. Well, Clarence and Liz, I would like to add this real, real briefly. Yes. For anyone believing that they may have a Robert Settlement connection, go to www.robertsettlement.org, and we have we have uh, some fantastic uh, descendants who know a and have a wealth of information to make that connection, uh, uh, confirm a connection. Okay. Mm-hmm. In addition, that settlement uh, that that website rather will tell you what is going on. We'll be having our um, celebration, our 96th consecutive homecoming uh, at Roberts Settlement in July. And uh, the dates will be uh, on the website. And you can offer, you know, offer any comments and feedback would be welcome, certainly welcome. Okay, I will see you there. I'm coming. (laughs) And, And Catherine? Well, I just want to invite everybody to Connor Prairie for our programming on African American history. We will have Black Hoosiers Untold Tales this coming February on Saturday nights, um, so you can look out for that. Uh, we've done that before. It was very exciting. We sold out. Um, it is a myriad of stories about black history in Indiana. Okay. All right. Well, our thanks to... Lavella Heiter, 
Robert Solomon, descendant, board member, and media chair, and Dr. Catherine Hughes, director of Museum Theater and Research for Connor Prairie, for joining us to discuss Indiana's Robert Solomon. Again, to learn more about the Robert Solomon, go to robertsolomon.org. And there is a wealth of information. I visited the site this afternoon. You will be very pleased. And ladies, thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I just truly enjoyed speaking with you. Bring It On has an open submission policy. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB, or you can always visit the WFHB News website at WFHB.org news. 
Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. In a state whose names means the land of the Indians, it's only appropriate that we celebrate the culture and contributions of our indigenous residents, past and present said Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton on October 8th as he issued an honorary proclamation recognizing the second Monday in October as Indigenous Peoples Day. And at the top of the hour, we mentioned that we'll be speaking with representatives from Indiana University's First Nations Educational and Cultural Center who are here to discuss activities scheduled for Native American Heritage Month scheduled for the month of November. We now extend a bring it on welcome to Senate Director Nikki Bell and Program Assistant Heather Williams. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for coming in on today. And Yes, thank you. And we have um, been able to access the calendar in advance. And well, boy, what a lineup uh, of things going on. This and, is wonderful. And we have a little bit of time. If you can, uh, Nikki, give us a little background on the Cultural Center and the many fine things you offered during the course of the year, not just in November, but during the course of the year. Sure. The First Nations Educational and Cultural Center is one of the five culture centers on campus within the diversity office. And we work to support Native American and indigenous students on campus and also to provide educational programming for the Bloomington and campus community. Uh, we really try to stress the... Uh, various contemporary aspects of Native identities, that is plural. Uh, We bring in uh, films and speakers and have lunchtime speakers and uh, arts and crafts activities where people can learn about contemporary identities, uh, what what is valued in these different communities, and, and to come together as a community and learn from each other. You know, that's fascinating. Um, and this particular cultural center um, is the newest of the cultural centers? That's correct. We're uh, a little over 10 years old now. Okay. And now your location is relatively new, too. That's correct. We've been in our current location uh, since 2014. And it's a great location. Uh, we're neighbors with La Casa and LGBTQ Plus Culture Center. So we're, we're right in there with all of our colleagues. And that address is 712 East 8th Street. And I know Nikki knew that, and I know Heather knew that. <laughs> but uh, it's a beautiful house. And um, it's it's just it's a busy house like the other ones. It's a busy cultural center like the other uh, facilities. Um, Heather, your role as program assistant, and we probably know that you're the one that keeps the place going. And, <laughs> and Nikki comes in and, and brings coffee and donuts. But, but yeah. you keep the place going. Right? You know that. I, yeah, I'm the face that everyone sees when when you come through our front door. So I am there for uh, immediate and uh, frontline support. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, with all that programming, you need a staff of people to help pull things together. Mm-hmm. And um, let's let's look at November. Um, wow, that's huge. And and, and a tremendous proclamation by uh, Mayor Hamilton back on October 8th. And how significant was that? I think that was was huge. Uh, one of the most important things for me is that that event was really student-driven. Uh, there was a conversation happening between some students, the Native American Student Association at the FNECC one day, 
one of our students, Caleb King, decided to go home and make a Facebook event. Uh, we were talking about uh, activities that we could could hold on Indigenous Peoples Day, and he made a Facebook event and said, "Hey, let's get together and and talk about publicly why having Indigenous Peoples Day, recognizing this, is so important to our community." And it turned from a Facebook event that we thought maybe a few people would show up to, to this large, you know, hundreds of people with the mayor offerings this proclamation. So it it started as a let's demand this to let's celebrate this because it took one week for the mayor to contact the students personally, mm -hmm. you know, wow, and say this awesome. is something that we as the community of Bloomington support. Excellent. So it was great to see how students realize when they you know commit to this, when they when their their voices are being heard out there. And uh, now, now, not lost in this conversation is that uh, October 8th was historically known as Columbus Day. Boo. And uh, <laughs> this was, um, and, and now that very history of Columbus, uh, many people just know the surface history in 1492, mm -hmm. uh, the ocean blue, whatever, but there was a history uh, that went on that is not very flattering, nor, nor is it very complimentary. That's correct. Um, and to have then the mayor proclaim that day as uh, as in National Indigenous Peoples Day uh, mm -hmm. is tremendous. Let's look at November and all the wonderful things. You have a wealth of things going on, and, and our time is a little limited, but, but let's dive right in. So uh, we're bringing in speakers and having films and uh, lunchtime speakers and whatnot, but a couple uh, areas we want to hit, and we want to make sure everybody check out our website at firstnations.indiana.edu. Also, our uh, Facebook page, IU First Nations, had all of our social media has all of our, our information on it. Uh, but we want to make sure that we mention Gary Morsaw, who's going to be coming in Thursday, November 1st, as our Native American Heritage Month uh, kickoff speaker. And instead of the traditional speaker format, uh, this year, the first aligns with First Thursdays at IU. So at the IU First Thursday celebration, Gary, who is a tribal chairman, or excuse me, a tribal council member for um, Pokagon Band Potawatomi and also the chair of their food sovereignty program, he's going to be talking about and offering up samples of traditional Potawatomi cooking. Uh, He's going to be also leading a weekend warrior workshop on Saturday, and that's something people have to RSVP to. So if you're interested, please write or call us. Uh, a traditional Potawatomi cooking or sort of traditional Potawatomi fusion cooking uh, workshop that we're going to be holding at the center where we're going to be cooking uh, ducks, roasting ducks, Potawatomi style. We're really excited about that. And it's particularly important because the Potawatomis are a group uh, who Indiana is their traditional homeland. Um, their headquarters is in Michigan, but they overlap into Indiana. So it's really important that we connect with these local tribes to mm -hmm. make sure their local customs that are still very much alive are, are visible. He says something rather interesting that their territory overlaps Indiana. Mm. State lines uh, to First Nations people really don't mean a lot. That's correct. Yeah, these are sort of arbitrary lines that were drawn by different people, you know, in, in a different era. So, so their boundaries, boundaries don't line up. Now, if someone were to, to want to explore, okay, what are then the First Nations boundaries? Would it be online at, a, at some website? That there are a to? lot of resources for, okay. for looking at that, whether individual, I would recommend going to individual tribal websites and, and looking at histories and culture that way. How many tribal uh, nations are there? There are currently 573 federally recognized tribes in the U.S., and, of course, on the radio, you can't see, but my, my jaw dropped. 
That's right. So when I mentioned the the plurality of native identities, this is um, something that that we really try to stress as well when we talk about it. My my wife and I uh, took a trip out to the Grand Canyon, mm. so we went through New Mexico. Little did we know that the large part of New Mexico is, is tribal territory. Yeah, and uh, it was it was really an eye opening experience. Uh, just the rich history and culture. Uh, I have a question: have. How many tribes are? Uh, students are at IU. Do you know that? We have a, a small population. Uh, it's about around 400-ish students who have identified as Native or having uh, Native ancestry. So mm-hmm. that's, that's 1% of the, uh, the IU student population. And that's from various tribes all that's over correct. the Yeah, that's the from, from Florida up to Alaska. Now, uh, I know a lot of people have done the DNA, and so have I. So has that attributed to uh, increase in in students since they now can say I've certain percentage. Have you noticed people coming in saying that? I hope not. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that would be my. Um, I think we're we're talking to a, a bigger topic right now. That is Elizabeth Warren and the DNA test uh-huh. that she can now verify her her um, claim. But um, to me, the DNA doesn't do justice to Native identity. It, uh-huh. it only um, um, in fact, it, it goes against and inhibits the the feel of community and what it means to be Native or Indigenous to, um, to your community. Okay. So um, I, I, sure, I sure hope we don't see a spike in DNA claims um, walking through the door because uh, the first question I would ask is what are you, what are you doing about it? What, what are right. you doing to contribute to that community that you are now claiming space in? Right. Um, yeah, and if they if all they have is this DNA DNA test, then I I, I, I noticed I that after that. she announced uh, there was a flurry of backlash, mm-hmm. and and her effort, of course, was was meant to to really um, to shame somebody who ridiculed her and called her uh, some very disparaging terms, and so that was not a very wise decision on her part, and. And many who uh, have advised her, or many who did not advise her, unfortunately, told her that was not wise. And uh, that may be something now that she may not be able to live down. But uh, but say if you suspect, what is the proper, if yeah. you suspect you are, what, what is proper, what is uh, acceptable in, in trying to uh, discover your own roots and heritage? I think you need to start with family. So you need to go back um, and talk to an elder within your family and get the facts from them and then research from there. Because mm-hmm. um, it's not enough to say I have native blood. Like As we just said, there's 573 uh, federally recognized tribes. So which one are you? Which mm-hmm. one are you claiming space in? And um, you have to know more than just the fact that the test shows that you have indigenous mm-hmm. blood. So I would recommend talking to elders and getting family names and researching it more and then doing the work to integrate yourself into the community before you begin to claim native space. So so there's something that on, on our part we do, and that is talk to your family. Mm-hmm. Look at your, uh, your genealogical trees. And, yeah. and mm-hmm. some DNA work uh, may be helpful, but that is not the answer. Absolutely. But not. then being armed now with this newfound information, try to ascertain what nation you may be a part of. And then there's a proper way, I imagine, then to approach the tribal elders or, or the, uh, the, the council that, that is with that nation. Um, now, is there a vetting process then that the nations will, 
We'll yeah, so each individual nation has a, a, a different process all their own as to who they accept as members into their tribe. Um, so um, there's not really a, a uh, answer across the board for that, but tribal council member or tribal council is there to serve their members. Mm -hmm. So if there is a, um, a person who suspects or thinks that they may be a member of the tribe but have been disconnected for one reason or another and they're rediscovering that identity or those roots within themselves, then I would implore them to contact their tribal council and then um, see what they can do for them. One, one, last, one last question okay. on, that, on that because then there's uh, also a question of scholarships that may be presented to individuals who are First Nations, uh, that there are a lot of groups that do offer unique scholarships, but then there is also a vetting process that goes with that as well. <coughs> is that correct? Or is, because I would imagine that someone could present themselves and say, yes, I'm this, that, and the other, but you need to produce some documentation. Correct. A lot of scholarships ask that you are uh, a member of a federally recognized tribe, which mm -hmm. means that you can prove and, that. And an enrolled member yes. as well. So there is that enrollment application enrollment process. And, mm -hmm. and of course, we can get into another conversation about voting um, <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah. some of the challenges that some members of a particular nation are having mm -hmm. because, again, some of someone's secretary of state wishes to uh, obstruct <coughs> yes. and uh, to hold some people's vote. Uh, render it countless so but anyway yeah and we love to talk about this so feel free to stop by the FNECC bring us back anytime yeah the closeness of, of, of November 6th I mean we cannot ignore that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we have we have about four minutes left and and let's get back to the calendar I know Liz has uh, some questions so I'm gonna I'm gonna yield over to Liz well I just want you to let the the listening audience know the rest of the activities that you have and then, uh, Nikki, a after this month is over, after you've done, told us about this, mm -hmm. I would like to know what's next. We're talking about the month of November. Well, after that, sure, go into that. Sure. So just going down the calendar, uh, we also have a couple of uh, what we're calling our crafter noon open houses, where uh, that's what it's the Wednesday, November seventh and Tuesday, November 13th. We get a lot of students, uh, some communities members for that. This year we're making beaded keychains. Uh, so students can come in, drop by, learn a new craft. Sometimes people bring what they already know and we get together and it's just a, a good social crafting time. We made beaded keychains last year. They were very, very popular, but uh, they fell off of most people's backpack. We made little things put on backpacks. Mm -hmm. Most people have fallen off since last year. So it's a, it's a good sustainable craft where we have to make them again. Um, Dana Warrington, who is going to be the Idle Jorg artist in residence, uh, he's going to be coming down talking about his life as an artist Thursday, November 8th. Uh, I'll, I want to uh, put special attention on our film series. Every yes. year during November, mm -hmm. we hold a film series. Uh, this year is the 12th annual. We're featuring the film Dawnland and Indian Horse. And these films deal with uh, residential school experience in particular, and uh, children who are taken from their homes, taken from their communities, and forced into boarding schools, and uh, dealing with assimilation, uh, forced assimilation, what that does to the communities, what that does to the students, what that does to families. Uh, also, in uh, partnership with Middleway House on November 12th, we're gonna be showing Hollow Water in the Dogwood Room of the Union, uh, 
and that deals with restorative justice in communities and working with uh, victims and um, and the perpetrators and how people can work through in this different community setting, sort of trying to to again restore justice. What's next, or Clarence? Did, I'm well, sorry. I was going to say that with uh, less than a minute, we're going to draw a reference to where people can go and see the calendar sure. um, online. Yes. And if, if you could share that, that website address where they can go to, to access this calendar. Sure. It's firstnations.indiana.edu. And scroll down just a little bit, look for our circle logo, and next to that will be Native American Heritage Month button. All right. Um, we're going to have to have you back. And I like to do this during the month of November so that you can uh, sort of recap some things that have gone on and then um, point us toward um, some of the celebratory events as well as uh, some things that occurred during the second half of November. Uh, But as always, we want to thank you for joining us, uh, Nikki. And um, Oh, absolutely. We, we'll have to have you back because you need to answer my question. I would love to come back. Be happy to come back. Okay. Our thanks to Indiana University's First Nations Educational and Cultural Center Director, Nikki Bell, Program Assistant, Heather Williams, and I, oh, and she's not here. Uh, thank you for joining us to discuss activities scheduled for Native American Heritage Month, scheduled for the month of November. And again, let's give you that uh, address, firstnations.indiana.edu. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional info about a calendar item uh, or that you've heard tonight, especially uh, the events taking place in November, uh, contact us at Bring It On at WFHB.org. <laughs> Once again, our thanks to Lavella Heiter, Robert Settlement descendant, board member and media chair, and Dr. Catherine Hughes, director of Museum Theater and Research for Connor Prairie, for joining us to discuss Indiana's Robert Settlement. To learn more, visit robertssettlement.org backslash history. And our show's producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Wes Martin. And uh, our, our skill board engineer for tonight has been uh, uh, Taya Wilson and doing a tremendous job. She's new with our staff, and we just love what she's doing. Our in- original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And I'm Liz Mitchell. Tune in next Monday, midterm election eve, November 5th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.